going on, guys? Welcome to episode three of the Krause House podcast. I am Flex Chapman. I am with Commodore. Commodore, how are you feeling today, man? Feeling good. I wanted to do the you know, David Tesh, the original intro song to Krause House, which was a dun 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 Remember we mm. sang it, and we were like, maybe one yeah. day we'll have enough money to buy the rights to it, which is uh, still not the case. Here we are. No, not the case. We had to go old-fashioned and just listen to your analog remake acapella acapella yeah i got a lot of cross house going on here i got a little monitor action behind me we can put some cool stuff on although i don't think that's set up for today cross house jersey the ski mask i still look gta lobby for you you look gta lobby now you kind of look like you took over the airwaves like cable television like you had hey. like those old villains used to do like you hacked espn and now you're gonna make some demands it's like the max, what is it? The, there was like a WGN in Chicago. It was like a max something from some sci-fi movie. He took over a legit broadcast and never found the culprit. So yeah, I'll take that vibe. Actually, I got a monitor back here not being used. I got to throw up the Crosshouse logo myself. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. So kick us off today. We got a good one. There's some things shuffling around in the ownership world, some technological advancements. We got a TikTok scare, some good stuff. Why don't you kick us off? Yeah, let's lead with the Utah Jazz airing games on local TV stations. So the over-the-air broadcast dropping the traditional local cable package. So it's a newly formed media arm, SEG Media. They're going to produce the games. They're also going to sell subscriptions to a soon-to-launch streaming platform that's going to offer access to every non-national TV game plus additional content. It sounds like this deal also is going to increase the reach of households that are available to see the Jazz games, which is also going to include all of Utah, some of Wyoming, a little bit of Idaho, a little bit of Nevada. And so before they had about 500,000 households that could see it, and it's going to jump to about 1.1 million TV households. So really changing up a lot of the broadcasting and how they're going to structure it. And this is also a move that we're seeing with other teams take. The Phoenix Suns are doing something similar to Las Vegas Gold Knights, doing something similar so my question to you is, does cable have any future in sports broadcasting? I think it does. Living in New York for a while, right? It reminds me of the Yes Network in for the New York Yankees, although that was cable. I think you maybe had to have some sort of sports package, but I just know what it did for the fans in New York, being able to have that reach in a city like New York. And I just actually see a lot of similarities. What's really interesting, and we've had the opportunity to meet Ryan in person, as he talks about his idea of fan engagement getting more eyeballs. One thing that was really interesting about his model was talking about the Mormon population and just this innate fan base that comes with it because they are in Utah. So it's like now you can get people, if they're not nationally televised, right? You can start tapping into these other cities that might have higher than average Mormon population, bringing them into the jazz community, even though they're not local to Salt Lake. I think it's a trend that you're going to see. You mentioned Phoenix. You mentioned the Vegas Knights. I could totally see why it's like there's revenue opportunities in it. There's fan acquisition opportunities in it. I think in general, it's a really good move. Yeah, I agree with you. The only part that I'm struggling with is that it does feel like the NBA should be the one that ultimately does this rather than the individual teams. And I think the team owner should do it in the meantime. But you have this weird thing where, you know, your favorite team, let's say you're a Utah Jazz fan, you live in market, it's a Thursday night. And so the game's on TNT. Now you have to go get cable to watch the TNT broadcast because TNT won't give you the rights, even though you paid for the premium subscription for the Utah Jazz TV app. 
and then the NBA is sitting there and they have some blackout effects through their NBA TV league pass and things like that. It just feels like to me that the league at a collective level should just move in this direction for all teams. And then if teams want to do something different, they can go ahead and make that choice. But it seems like the best fan experience would be to set this sort of at the league level and then work downward. But if I'm an owner and that league isn't there yet, and yes, it sucks that my big marquee games that are nationally televised might not be on my app. It is what it is, but I'll take that kind of inconvenience. But it does make me feel like this is part of a trend that we're going to look back in 20 years and say, this was just a brackish water of us converting into the league, just doing this quote unquote, right. You buy that? Yeah, totally. There's a few, I think it makes the ecosystem more complex, but to your point over a long period of time, it's probably better for the fan. I don't even know how it works today. If they're not necessarily nationally televised, I'm guess you sign up for league pass or something like that, which is owned and operated by a completely different company. So well, even without even league pass doesn't let you watch the TNT game. Like in order to, if you wanted to watch every single Bucks game, you basically would have to, let's say, sorry, a jazz game. You're going to have to watch every single, buy the jazz app when to pay mm -hmm. the jazz. You'd have to buy a TNT thing. You probably have to download the ABC app and have some sort of ABC subscription for the occasional ABC game. You would also need ESPN, to do that with yeah. ESPN. And then you probably may or may not want the NBA league pass to watch all the other games, but to watch every single jazz game, you need about four apps as I understand it, which that's not great. I mean, getting in the heads of the consumer, it's not too much different than how streaming works now, right? I know that it's different because it, you're talking about one team. But every time I look up, right, I'm signing up for a new subscription service to stream something, right? And so I think it's ingrained in our consumer DNA. That's just the world that we live in. I actually saw a joke on Twitter that was like, we should bundle all these streaming services together and just call it cable. So if my goal, my mission as a fan is to watch every jazz game that season, this is what it is. What you're tapping into, which I think is kind of a, a separate point, to be honest, is should it come from the league? Probably. But the owners are looking to do something today. Ishbia right. with the Suns, Ryan with the Jazz. Right? I would so do like, the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, hey, we want to do this now. We can. Let's go for it. And then I'm sure the league will pull up and say, hey, is this something we we'll want to do for the league? Do we want to defer it down to the team level? They'll make that call. But yeah, I think for, in general, for the fans, right? If you want to watch these games, you want to check it out. He even had a quote in there that says, anyone with bunny ears now, which is a reference to an old school antenna for you Gen Zers out there, anyone, can, anyone with bunny ears can watch a game. So I think that's the goal, right? It's complex. It's nuanced. It might be a little bit difficult today, but the goal is how do we get the most fans watching the most amount of games. Yeah. And I agree with all your points. And the cable joke is a really good one because think of the year 2001. And it's like, you want to watch every single jazz game in 2001. You turn on Time Warner cable or whatever the local cable package is, and you can watch them on an ESPN. You can watch them in TNT. They happen to play on ABC that night. Or you want to watch the local broadcast. You're going to watch every single jazz game with the convenience of two or three buttons taps to watch every single game. And so it is funny to think about, especially in sports, we've really taken many steps backwards. And obviously short form content has made a massive explosion. Now I don't have to sit and watch all those things. I'm also thinking 2001, you're watching ESPN in the morning, catch all your highlights. And then at night you're watching the actual broadcast. That was a pattern, but totally agree with you. I do love that joke. I do want to ask you, do you think, you know, increasing the total households by roughly two X, does that drive two X the revenue opportunity, is that apples to apples? Or do you think they're somewhat already saturated? Do you think this number of households jumping that big 
What does that mean? What does that look like if you had to sort of project in the future in terms of business? Interesting. Will it 2x? I don't know. I think there's too many variables. Is it apples to apples? I would say no. Kind of reminds me of a brand marketing campaign versus something with a stronger CTA or paid acquisition or something that's more measurable. It's like you will get more people watching games, signing up for services. So there's certainly like a direct revenue perspective there. But I think in general, it's like getting as many people to watch the game as possible, bringing them in, having them make trips to go to the game because they're following their team, they're catching every game. I think it's not quite apples to apples, but I think in general, it's going to lead to more engaged fans. It's going to lead to more indirect revenue. I think that's the plan that they're going for. And I can see it right now. It might be a little bit tough to measure if it's not just pure subscriptions, but I think you're doing both. It's a round out the point. It's like, you're going to get direct revenue from either subscriptions or some sort of broadcasting rights, but you're also going to get more involved fans. that are going to want to buy the t-shirt. They're going to want to buy the hoodie. They might travel down with their family in Nevada, Idaho to catch a game in Salt Lake. I can totally see a world where that happens. Yeah, I agree with you. I think if I had to put a number on it, I would say, Hey, it's yes, you're opening up the total households by roughly two X. I'd expect if I were forecasting that business, maybe 20% bump in revenue, 15% bump saying, Hey, I do think that if you're in these other surrounding areas, or if you've been in Utah and maybe you didn't have access, unless Utah is winning a bunch of games, competing in the West in a material way, you have your jazz fans. The jazz were really good for a period of time there that I, I think you've mostly sold this idea. Again, landing a big superstar or again, winning big time, that can change it. But I don't necessarily think that opening it to households. But again, hey, if I'm in the ownership on the business side of the table, I'd rather have 1.1 million households being able to watch my product every night than half a million. So again, I don't mean to like poo on it. I just, I wanted the article alluded to the fact that they're two axing their kind of opportunity there. And mm. I, just, I felt like a little cynical on it. Yeah, I do too. I think the biggest thing you and I have both been guilty of this too, in our long careers as our respective Wizards fan and Bucks fan hey. is that we tend to watch a lot more games when they're doing good. Like, oh, that's dude, just, speak for yourself. No, that's not <laughs> true. I know you didn't. I know you didn't in those down years. When we had those, we kept bumping up against LeBron in those playoffs. I was catching that random February game with Wall in the early in Beal's career. And I just tend to not watch them if they're not nationally televised today. And which if anyone who's been following the Wizards for the past decade, we don't get too many of those slots. You bring up a good point about them being good, right? I think that will have a lot to do with it. You catch those random games if you're in the top three seeds in the West, right? And those kind of casual jazz fans come out because you're right. The diehards are baked in. They'll catch the game regardless. They're there. Yeah. Which is kind of a, a mute point because the owners more so than looking for these fan engagement tactics or these revenue streams. They're also trying to win too, right? So it's like- Of course, yeah, they're doing both. Doing they're both. doing both. So the plan is, hey, let's get this in many households as possible while we rebuild our team and get better. Yeah, I agree. When your team's good and you're missing wins, you feel like you're missing out on something. And when you miss a totally. loss, I want to see the highlights. I want to know what went wrong and just better understand what's going on. But yeah, like I don't want to like wallow in it. And so there does seem to be a human bias there. I feel like when I see the Bucks win a big game and I didn't watch it, I'm like, man, I, I missed out. Like you, you, you feel like the shitty fan that you are. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, let's move on. We've got some big news coming in the ownership front. Let's start with, I think, most pertinent to the Krause House and the Krause House mission, huh? Michael Jordan agrees to sell the Hornets at a $3 billion valuation. Like I said, purchased at $3 billion, 
Only last year, 2022, the franchise was valued at $1.77 billion. So almost a 2X. The new owners, and I'm going to try not to butcher these names, but Gabe Plotkin estimated net worth of 400 million. He's the founder and investment management firm Melvin Capital, which for those that remember, was a huge player in the GameStop saga that took place a couple of years ago. Another owner is Rick Snell, who's the co-president of Clayton, Dubler, and Rice, which is also a private equity firm. Our good old friends Dial Capital invests as well. It's their third stake in an NBA franchise. So it's now the Hornets, the Atlanta Hawks, and the Sacramento Kings. Rapper J. Cole is involved and country music star Eric Church as well. So just a brief history. Back in 2010, Jordan bought a controlling interest in the Hornets at a $275 million valuation. This is crazy. And had been a minority investor in the club since 2006. So what are your thoughts on the new ownership front? I think specifically, what does that mean for the club moving forward? Just to round out the question, it's like, I think Michael Jordan being widely regarded as one of the best players of all time as the majority the best. owner is not the majority owner anymore. What does that look like? Other than just a pure, hey, a team got sold. Does the fact that it's Michael Jordan have any impact? And what does that mean for the future of the club? Yeah, I think there's two things that are jumping out to me. One is that I have no inside information. I have not heard anything beyond me just reading stuff on the internet about Michael's general management, his ownership style, his leadership style on the Wizards and things like that. But it has been a string of really rough accusations of just incompetence, for lack of a better word. And I've, you know, I, you watch the Last Dance documentary as well. He strikes me as a very talented human being that cares very deeply about winning, succeeding, dominating, revenge, all these things. And I think that occasionally you have a person that unlocks that in a very narrow dimension and they excel to be the greatest basketball player of all time. However, those tendencies, you look at Steve Kerr as an example, as being considered one of the top coaches, Greg Popovich, Eric Spolstra. I don't think that they have those same dimensions. Yeah, I think they have stronger EQ. I think they have better understanding of complementary skills and bringing those things together. I want to pair this person with that person where is Michael's, I think, point of view is I'm going to do it by myself. I'm going to dominate. We're going to win. We need excellence from every single spot we need. And I think you tend to see people like that fail in these more weird, dynamic, social structures. And you see that in traditional startups all the time too, right? Like an exceptional individual contributor doesn't make a great manager, right? Vice versa, a great manager often is a terrible individual contributor. And there's a lot of tension between the two. And this is essentially that. So I do think like if I'm a Hornets fan going forward, I don't know much about the new ownership group either, but it does feel like, hey, thank you for getting us to the spot that we've been. It was a great ride, but I'd be excited to embark on a new chapter that kind of removes Michael from the decision-making and whatnot. So I think as a Hornets fan, I'm excited. I think from the business perspective, obviously it continues to be a trend. I actually added a new trend to our list, which is sports of the new religion. And I think the reason I made that as tongue in cheek is this asset class just keeps getting bigger, more expensive. Obviously inflation is playing a fact here. I think also things with like traditional investments being a little more shaky, people are looking to more recession-proof investments, which I think sports also do really well. I think that it's also just, hey, at a certain point, Michael enjoys life. He's a golfer. He's got, he's got other things other than just owning the Hornets. He's getting older in his age. I think, hey, man, you made an absolute mega bag here. You're making a mega bag with your Nike and your shoe deal. Go enjoy it. Go spend every single dime of it. Have fun. Like at a certain point, 
can't bring it with you. I think those are my two thoughts on it. What are your reaction? Yeah, I think anytime you're a fan of a franchise and you bring in someone prolific with that kind of star power, I think deep down part of you hopes that they can leverage that personal brand to help improve the franchise. So like you got Michael Jordan and some private equity guy, right? You would hope that Michael Jordan could use that influence of maybe attracting top talent, attracting the best coaches, the best front office. Why would you not want to go be involved with someone like Michael Jordan in any capacity without obviously being in the room? Like you mentioned, it doesn't seem like that has happened, right? Like the franchise has struggled even from a player motivation perspective, right? Like they've had a ton of off the court trouble, right? Like Miles Bridges, like LaMelo's gotten to a few things, right? So it's like even someone like Michael Jordan to sit down with the players and be like, Hey, you know, what are you doing as the owner and the leader of the franchise? I, again, I'm not saying he did or didn't, but it just it didn't seem to be too effective either way. If I'm a Hornets fan, I think you said this, I'm happy for the shakeup. Let's get new faces in there, new blood, people with some ideas on how to move the franchise forward. I think Plotkin was a minority owner before in Melvin Capital, right? And so, okay, let's, we got some people in the house that are familiar with the franchise, but let's get new leadership in there and see what can happen. And to your point, Michael Jordan made his bag specifically with that. Yeah, I think I'm totally, if I'm a fan, I'm ready for that next chapter. Yeah, one one thing that was coming to mind too with this is like, you made a comment about leveraging his brand and do these exterior things. And I think the one area when I think about Michael beyond his shoe deal and beyond basketball specifically in the Hornets, like I think about him in getting his brand into college sports right? And the different teams that have done the Jordan brand jerseys and adopting Jordan. And that to me is a great example. It's like he was able to leverage his brand equity and say, Hey, drop, obviously it's all Nike at the end of the day, drop Adidas or whoever it is, Reebok or Under Armour and roll with me because of the, in like in college sports and in Jersey endorsements and whatnot, I feel like that leverage has been there. But then when it comes almost to the human stuff, okay, how do you build a culture of winning yeah, let's hey, be as good as I was and the rest will fall in place. And so I think the one area he's done really well and is like the one area that you alluded to, which is like leveraging his brand equity to get business deals done. And that just has it translated in leadership of human beings on a basketball court. Moving on into other ownership news. So Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, owner of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils, are buying a equity stake into Gibbs Racing. Joe Gibbs, at the time, Washington Redskins, absolute coaching legend, responsible for their glory years, as I can attest to, is selling a piece of his racing team, which has been amazingly successful, winning his NASCAR team in the circuit's top three national series. Arctos Capital, again, another private equity firm that has stakes in multiple NBA teams is also involved. We don't really know the details of the acquisition too much, but we do know that there is a actual equity swap. So Gibbs will be a limited partner in HBSE, which is the Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment Group. Diving in, another big one, another familiar face with Arctos, some more familiar faces with Harris and Blitzer taking a stake in racing now question to you, are we entering an era of multi-sport holding conglomerates? Yeah, I love that question because if you look at like the Fenway group, Monumental Sports, you're just seeing this new emerging strategy of just rolling up 
in many cases, like an entire city's worth of sports. But what I love about what they're up to is they're expanding beyond that and just thinking into multi-sports and leveraging these all these different assets in different ways. And you got to imagine there's also a lot of streamlining opportunities around ticket sales or even software things. It's just a fascinating concept to just start thinking about holding all of these assets. And then what are the unique things that you can do when you have the conglomerate of it? I do imagine for what it's worth that we're entering in the more of a conglomerate phase. And a part of that is the valuation of these assets is getting so large that you're needing to raise large amounts of capital to put together into these sort of things. And I am excited for us, call it in 10, 20 years for us to emerge back into the specialization phase of this. It'll be interesting to imagine that you and I are talking in 10 years and starting to see maybe evidence of the next phase of people being like, hey, my pitch is that I'm going to come in and own one team and only think about that team and hyper-specialize and whatever. And I don't think we're there yet, but I think that we're in this era of these multi-conglomerates. I think it's really powerful. It just goes to show that this asset class is super fascinating. And there's a lot of unique novel ways to squeeze out more revenue in holding these assets together and finding the synergies between them. Yeah. The through line is a really interesting concept that we've beat this drum continuously at Crosshouse, right? Which is sports has primitives, right? There's merchandise, there's tickets, there's media, like all of those things will have small nuances cross sport, but there's also a lot of similarities, right? So I think leaning into that and going to racing, which is on fire F1 NASCAR is obviously a very established association in the U S right. So it's, I think it just makes a ton of sense. You bring up the point of conglomerates. I think so too, with the valuations that they currently sit at, right? It's like the people that are able to deploy capital into these things are getting fewer and fewer. It's almost that we might be at a the rich get richer moment, right? As soon as NHL now allowing private equity, the NFL, I think, is exploring the idea. So the rumor says, I think you're going to see companies like Arctos and Tile continue to snatch these up. And then obviously Joe Harris and Blitzer both know the rate of return, the ROI in these sports franchises and clubs. So you're going to start seeing the same faces pop up again and again, I'd imagine. But yeah, I think it's here. Let me ask you, what do you think of the notion of fan ownership in racing? Does it hold the same oomph as team-based sports? Not even just racing. I'd like to maybe ask you just on sports where maybe the individual is the front person, right? There's like a more of a single face to these teams rather than an entire team. But what are your thoughts there? Yeah, we got connected with someone who was working in, I think it's called F1W series. It's the women's F1 series. And they were exploring making a DAO and a fan ownership and engagement. And the thing that they really organized around was like being able to customize the car colors. And I was like, man, I just feel... There was a lot of good ideas around the principle of why it should happen, but then the actual like what drives people to support this thing, it feels really... And when I think about what drives a lot of Jerry's to Krausehaus, as I think a lot of NBA fans, general management is the holy grail, is that people want to say, hey, I'm a Bucks fan as an example, like, should the Bucks have traded Chris Middleton for Bradley Beal? And talk on talk shows and debate with friends and on and want people wanting to make that decision, I think is at its core. And when I retract that into boxing, golf, racing, tennis. I'm like, I don't know. And so I think the fan ownership aspect of it needs to be really clean. Like I could imagine a world, I know a lot about boxing. I don't know a lot about racing, but in boxing, there's a world where you're spending money on certain trainers. You're spending money on, on running your camp. 
or working your way up through cards on shows and working into the title, uh, kind of the main events on bigger events, working your way into pay-per-views, working your way to be headline on the pay-per-views. And all of that takes money to train, to push out the media. And then there's a purse to share as you go up. And so when I think of like boxing as an example, that world to me of like fan ownership and engagement, even though the fan engagement, when you think about access, equity, and governance, the governance is almost zero, but the access and equity opportunities are there. That to me, like you could imagine these like loops of funding these cycles for a boxer to work their way up to the top. And I could imagine you're watching Mike Tyson and you helped, you get a piece of his purse if he wins because you helped him identify him and help him train and help the media. Like that one I can get behind. But with racing where there's like this existing league and structure, I don't know. I struggle to see it. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, man, I agree on some points. I don't know. I think these low impact decisions like car color or what kind of trunks a boxer is going to wear are interesting, but shouldn't be the focal point. So I think those kind of things, because they're low impact decisions, right? Like the color of the car and the trunks on the boxer don't affect the outcome of the match, right? It is really low risk, right? But you have a chance where it's it could potentially be lowish impact, right? So it's very one to one, or it could potentially be medium impact. Like we're not sure. I don't think anyone's really done something to this effect. So I'm in the camp of why not? But if that's your differentiator, I don't think it's strong enough. So I think if you have the opportunity to do that, why wouldn't you? I think from our conversations that we've had, I think that general management is one of the last things that an ownership group would give up to fans. But I also think that once you're in that seat, I feel like your individual fan, it's ones that I think a lot of people won't really want to touch. When you see what goes on in those decisions and you peel back the curtain, everyone thinks they know until they actually have to come up with one of those decisions and they realize- And the salary cap management and yeah. And so when it's pen to paper, right? It's it's very easy to sit and just be like, oh yeah, like I would have traded this for Bradley Beal. It's okay. Then once you see everything that goes on, those decisions are a lot harder. So I think the point to me saying that is that we've always said that the holy grail is giving people ownership-like feeling without the responsibility. Take NBA All-Star voting, for example, millions, I think tens of millions of people vote for that. And it doesn't really matter, right? It actually matters nothing, not at all, as far as the game goes. And even their individual vote doesn't matter all the way because it's only 50%. They bumped it up, but it's only 50% of what's accounted for. And still tens of millions of people show up to do it. So I think it's interesting for individual sports, not as interesting for team-related sports, but Again, I think leaning in more on the access side, if you can't do equity, but then don't completely discount governance because I think there's people out there that will find that exciting. And you got to think of the market too, maybe not someone in their thirties or forties, but maybe a 12 year old kid, right? Right. They're like, Hey, I want the car to be red. And they see that pulling up to the starting line and it's red. That may turn them into a fan for life, right? The fact that they got to decide that, but you can't have that be the focal point of your value proposition. It's got to come along with. Crazy idea, like Fortnite really, I think, nailed home this idea of emotes. And so these little dances that are effectively meme dances, it would be really dope to, if you were an individual athlete, an individual sport, I'm thinking of golf, boxing, whatever. If you're celebrate, you 
listed your emote up for sale. And so you're like, when I win my boxing matches or in between rounds or when I come out, I was watching a TikTok video. Was it, is it Swift? He was on the Grizzlies for a minute, big time dunker. Ring a bell. And he did the, he does did the bird thing, right? I think he does after every dunk. And it's so funny to watch because I remember that happening and you see him like do a windmill dunk and he dunks and he, and he just does a quick bird thing. It would be like, what if you sold that? You remember the Darius Miles and or they did the two fists in the head, right? Yeah, yeah. like like you could sell those. And so I was like, what are the novel ways of injecting some governance into these things? Of do you trash talk? Do you say silent? Just playing with some of that would be fun. But I was thinking about selling your remote space would be fun. And that's what I mean, right? It's like those will never be high impact, but they can potentially be medium impact. At the very worst case, right, they're low impact, but you might gain a fan or two. And I think those are very easy to implement type things. You're talking about essentially a voting structure, right, of some kind, right? So it's not yeah. a crazy technological advancement that you have a bunch of sunk costs into it. It's, it's fairly easy to pull off. But again, you don't want your value proposition to be a low to medium impact thing. You want it to be high. So it has to be this a la carte side item rather than the main course. That's the analogy I'll go with. I want to touch on quick trend identification. I put sports are the new religion again. Just I think that this sort of idea of conglomerates, Joe Gibbs now owning a piece of what they're working on, what they own a piece of what he's working on. Just this like behemoth of an asset class is just growing, evolving and becoming bigger and bigger. But did you have any sense of a trend of where this might fit? Yeah, I feel like that's the only logical one. I thought the equity swap was really interesting. It'd be interesting to see. I don't think they would have any plans to do this, but it's an interesting kind of thought exercise of what would this mean for like Sixers fans, right? If they're all under the same ownership group, is there some kind of throughput that they could play around with? Because they're all obviously under the same umbrella, if I'm not mistaken. Actually, the the Sixers, or sorry, oh, sorry, Commanders are not under this, but the Devils and the Sixers are. Yeah, playing with those under their portfolio of like, how do you convert fans into the other one? Yeah. Which is obviously something that we think about all the time, but I would be interested to see if they have any plans for that. So sports is the new religion Love is the, kind of the only trend that really makes sense. All right. So let's talk about, by I think probably my favorite app, TikTok, and just what the future landscape of that looks like if it does get banned. In May, Montana's governor actually signed a bill that does ban TikTok in the state. TikTok's suing alleging that the law is unconstitutional, which does resonate with me. It seems crazy that a state could just be like, hey, you're done with this app, but hey, crazy times. And despite all of this kind of uncertainty of the future of the platform, it's still really a core part of a lot of leagues and team strategy of getting their content out digitally. So I'm just kind of curious, is TikTok going anywhere? Should teams be looking elsewhere? Yeah. Sorry, I was imagining your For You page and I got a little bit sick to my stomach. <laughs> I can't imagine what that thing looks like. But is TikTok going anywhere? I doubt it. I think the most logical thing to do would be to figure out our data export policy. There's a lot of things that you can do to reduce the amount of things that an app can find out about you. I think it looks like more of a regulation thing than a pure ban that seems really extreme. There was... Some talks of, I think, Microsoft and Oracle maybe buying TikTok. Like, I'd imagine that's always a possibility. I don't think it's 
happening or in discussion right now, but that's always a possibility. So I think there's outs is my point. If I'm running a social strategy for anything in sports, music, entertainment, I'm not jumping off that horse anytime soon. What I think is interesting is a lot of other social platforms are following suit. I know Snapchat was paying creators an enormous amount of money for their kind of shorts and like these digital series just hosted on Snapchat. YouTube shorts are off to the races. So I think short-term content is king now. I can continue to see that trend continuously emerging and growing and evolving. So if I'm a social media coordinator to head of digital strategy for any of these large sports teams or media outlets, no, I'm continuing on the short form path. I think there's always going to be a platform where people want to consume that in the foreseeable future. So whether it is TikTok or whether it's not, I think that general strategy will still hold tight. What do you think? Yeah, I, I like that point. It's like, hey, you're making vertical native short form content is the thing that you're getting good at. And you might publish it onto YouTube, Reels, TikTok. It really doesn't matter. And so your team should be thinking about that generally. And yes, there's going to be some TikTok trends and audios that you would want to better understand and whatnot. But I think that, yeah, you're spot on to just say that's what you're producing. And so focus on that. The second thing I would say too, is that until the day it is banned, I think one of the beautiful things about this movement towards algorithmic media, and that's one of the trends I certainly outlined on this one here is the impact of that is having a big follower base really doesn't really matter a ton on TikTok anymore. So one of the arguments you can make is, hey, every day that you post a good clip that amplifies your brand today on TikTok that does well is just good for today. And every day that goes forward, you're not really losing anything by posting, by focusing on TikTok and then shutting that all off and switching to YouTube on the day it's banned because good content's going to win on good content. You really have almost no downside in steering away from it because of the skill rep that you had touched on and then and the way that followers really don't matter a ton. I think it's, I think you're totally right. It's just like, keep on keeping on. Yeah, one thing that I think is so important for sports is that it naturally lends itself to short form content, right? Like it, sports center, I remember when we were growing up, every morning it was a sports center morning, right? Stuart Scott, Rich Eisen. And although that was an hour long, right? It's just clips of highlights, right? It's like yeah. stitched together and made it into long form, right? So it's just a series of short form content that is masked as this long form show. And that's because sports highlights and excitement happen in bursts, regardless of what sport you're watching. So it just fits the whole narrative really well. The argument on the other side though, is that although I think it's important for teams to be there, I was thinking about this. It's like, the conversion mechanism, I think is a lot higher than if you are just an individual creator or even a musician or things like that. And what I mean is that when I see a new artist on TikTok and I enjoy their music, what do I go do? I look up if they're coming to town to go to a show, I stream all their songs, right? They've converted me into a fan. I think that's a lot harder with sports, right? If I stumble across the jazz account, which I saw, I think is the second most followed TikTok account in the NBA. Am I a jazz fan now? No. I think the switching costs to, to get a conversion, whether that's revenue, eyeballs on the team, whatever that is, is a lot harder with sports. Not to say that sure. they should abandon it, but it's just a lot different game, right? If I'm selling a product, it's great. If I want you to go listen to my music, 
short form is great. If I want to convert you into a fan, it's a lot harder. So it's this weird kind of paradox where it's very easy. It brings you in. It increases the following count because sports is naturally these almost like anaerobic bursts of excitement, right? Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder to convert the actual fan. And I think that's a lot harder to convert the revenue. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I was thinking about what cases does that not true for me. And I think to your point, like I certainly started to follow the Grizzlies over the past few years, partly because of how aggressive and disrespectful they played the Lakers, which I know is foreshadowing. It didn't end well with all that. But what did that mean for me? Did I buy a Desmond Bain jersey? No. Did I maybe tune in? To, I, I subscribed to their subreddit. That was like something, but that doesn't make any material value for the league or the team itself. But I was thinking about hard knocks and hard knocks was the one thing that gave me some slight contrarian thoughts of like, ah, I remember watching Going Deep. I think it was with the Raiders one year and kind of Darren Waller's story. But I haven't bought anything on the Raiders because of that. I certainly feel more connected to the Raiders that season and maybe Darren Waller as a player during that series. But it took really deep, long form story content that I watched. I think they do four episodes, roughly an hour each for the show. Four hours of watching Raider stuff that made me a Darren Waller fan. So to your point, yeah, easy in, easy out, certainly type of situation. Is the fact that you are just like casually more of a Grizzlies fan than you were a couple of years ago matter? I feel like it is interesting where it's really easy to produce that level of content now. And it's really easy to get distribution. Your fan acquisition cost, your fact, if you will, is difficult to measure. But I still think it's value because again, why not? It's easy to put these clips up. You're going to gain a massive following. And if you can even convert a few fans, it's probably worth it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a little bit of a zero sum game going on in that world where it's like, Hey, the other teams are going to go do it. So you might as well, again, winning solves everything. Superstars solve everything, but on the edges, you might as well. I touched on the trend. I think algorithmic media is certainly the trend here. Any disagreements? Otherwise we will hop into our last segment. No, TikTok pioneered the concept of algorithmic media. So tough to argue that one. All right. So you made the last two games. I thought I would make today's game for the gram. And today's wow. game is the top 10 most iconic jerseys in sports draft. The draft format, you're going to go first. We're going to each pick five to round out our 10. We're going to name the player, the team, and like the color or theme or era whatever, just make sure everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. So we're going to name the player, the team, and like the color, the theme, or the alt jersey, whatever you need to make sure that everyone is aware of the exact jersey that you're talking about. And ideally, we'll throw it up on the video stream as well so people can take a look at it. Any questions before we get started? Otherwise, you have honors, sir. No, prepare to get owned like in the last few games. <laughs> Maybe I think because you made this one, you might have some home court advantage here, but I'm going to start off strong here. With my number one overall pick is Penny Hardaway rocking those Orlando Magic pinstripe baby. Take that off your board. If you didn't have that on your board, you messed up. I did. I had a shack uh, of that same jersey, but nonetheless. A black jersey or the white jersey? Both are fresh, but I think they debuted them in the black. So I'm going to go with that. I went black as well. Great pick. Yeah, I had Shaq in there. It was in my top five, so I don't want to, I can't do spoiler alert, but I love the pick. Honestly, I think every single one of these picks is going to be pretty solid. Penny is interesting choice over Shaq. Why did you go Penny over Shaq? Penny more relatable. I was, I was a big Shaq guy as well, but dude, if you grew up in that era and didn't love Penny Hardaway, then there's something wrong with you. Penny yeah. was obviously straight. I mean, 
there was a top three. I would probably say Jordan was in there, but I don't think number one. But I think Larry Johnson and Penny Hardaway were probably number one, number two. Sean Kemp, throw Sean Kemp in there. Ooh. So, yeah. Ooh. So Penny was my guy, Ooh. man. Penny was my guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have to just go. This is meant to be iconic here. I, of all sports, I think you missed here. You had Michael Jordan, Bulls, Pinstripes, Black, 23. I think that's the most iconic jersey I could possibly think of. And so I, I think that's a slam dunk number one overall pick. Yeah, that's a new best choice. But hey, listen, I wouldn't expect any anything less from you. So that's solid. No, hey, listen, it's a good pick. It's quality. Anytime you have Jordan in the jersey, it makes sense. But yeah, not, not my first pick. All right. Not even What's on your, my board. Not on the uh, did you have a Jordan red on the board? I, I did not. I did okay, not. that's I've already won, but continue with your second overall pick. I'm going to continue with the pinstripe theme, and I got to go New York Yankees. Come on, that is an iconic jersey. Obviously, I'm going with Jeter, right? It's just he is Mr. Yankee. And when you put those things on, dude, it means something. I'm not normally a traditional jersey guy. It doesn't really, it doesn't really carry a lot of weight, except for the New York Yankees. That is an iconic jersey that I don't think they'll ever touch. I love that pick. Yeah, that was on my list way up there as well. Curious why you went Jeter over Babe Ruth. Any strong opinion on that? Do you feel Jeter is more iconic than Babe? Yeah, I was in New York during the Jeter days. It's just dude's a legend, an absolute icon. I think actually Babe Ruth, certainly a legend in his time, but I think because of the publicity and where we are with media today, like decades and decades further. Yeah. I think he's still considered Mr. Yankee, dude. I think he's mm -hmm. just the guy that when you think of the Yankees uniform, you think of Derek Jeter. Babe Ruth has a Jeter jersey hung up in his house. So there you go. There it is. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. All right. I am going to take with my next, my second overall pick, I'm going to take a Deion Sanders Cowboys blue. I almost went Falcons on it, oh, but God, I, I just hate your team. Oh, I just love that. I, I love Deion so much. Dude, that that cowboy cool. color looks so good. I can't do Cowboys, man. Just because I'm biased. I can't do Cowboys. I hear I you. I it. hear you. I don't love the Cowboys either, but I'm just thinking iconic jerseys. Dion Cowboys, man, in that blue. Woo-wee! Turn on my theme music. My next few are a little bit deep cuts. I like that. I did struggle with that, and I have a long list of some alternatives, so I can go a little more deep cutty with you because okay. I did have some of the, kind of the more boring, iconic ones. So let's get weird. Okay, mid-2000s-ish. I'm going with the Florida State undefeateds. I don't know if you remember those, but... Florida State, obviously, that crimson, kind of burgundy, and like gold. They're like Redskins, Commander colors. Ish, yeah. Traditional colors, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they would wear, on big games, and they were called undefeated because they hadn't lost in them, they would wear these all black, like complete that, yeah. black helmet, black jersey, black pants, with little trims of that maroon and gold on them, with the feather going down. Dude, I'm telling you. If I lined up against that, I would just go home. I'd pack it in. I would, I'm just done. Player, I actually, when we were going through the notes, I missed the player part, but I will go. I think I'm like 90% sure Myron Roll played on them. He was like mm. their starting safety, best Charlie defensive Ward. player in the, he, I don't, I think that's, it was after his time. It was after his time. It doesn't matter. I'm just picture and show. <laughs> I'm joking. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> he was a road scholar, which I thought was crazy too. So one of the smartest. Mm -hmm just individuals period in the country, let alone athlete dude was a stud. So I know he was there for that. So I'm going to go with my own role. 
I said I was going to get weird with you, but I, the, given it's still on the board, I just, and uh, I just got to do it. But uh, a Green Bay Packers, green Brett Favre jersey. Ooh. Oh, just. Mm, baby. You are noob city, dude. You have Jordan, <laughs> Deion Sanders, and now hey, Brett Favre. The assignment was most head? iconic jerseys, bro. Oh, that was the bro. assignment. You're doing like Flex's favorite jerseys, which is fine. It's fine. No, but dude, those are iconic. Those are iconic jerseys. New York Yankees, bro. Come on. It's true. Your Jeter was one. Yeah. A uh, green Brett Favre, though. Dude. Oh, so Man, good. So I good. don't know. I don't know. All right. Let's All right. hear your fourth pick. Okay. So, yeah, we're going to have different teams because iconic is just, I mean, they're iconic to jersey heads. Dude, Real jersey the, hands. Yeah. This one is the deepest cut, dude. This one is the deepest <laughs> cut. Give me a Hartford Whalers jersey. I don't know if you remember that team, but they were in the NHL and probably a smaller market than Green Bay. I, mm-hmm. I got to think Hartford, Connecticut, at least rivals. So smallest, probably smallest market in the entire sports. And they had a W with the whale fin coming out. Dude. I'm telling you, I can't name a single player on the Hartford Whalers, and I'm proud of that. But that jersey, you're that missing blue, the assignment, green, bro. <laughs> dude, that jersey was incredible, incredible. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna lose this one just on technicalities alone because the player was important in it. But I hear you, that jersey looks great. But yeah, name a player on there, no clue, no clue. I guess I'm not doing deep cuts because your deep cuts are actual deep cuts. But I'm gonna go with the Peyton Manning colts jersey in white and i want to touch on one thing is i was right my list i had written down all the teams and the colors and thing i think it's the only jersey i have one other jersey and i'm curious if you'll guess it is there any other iconic jersey in the nfl or the nba that jumps out to you as being iconically in its white base any other jerseys jump out to you in the NBA specifically, you said? NBA or NFL were the, the two leagues I was considering. So I was picturing like every iconic player wearing their kind of version of a, their best jersey. And I realized almost all of them wore their home color predominantly. Mm-hmm. And the home color mm-hmm. generally, at least in the NFL, is dark. And I was just curious if any white ones jumped out to you. One other one and maybe a, a 2B, but I was just curious. Did you say Peyton Manning's white jersey? That's your pick? I chose white, yeah, over blue. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. I would give this slight... It's close, but I would actually still give the slight edge to blue, even with Peyton, but it's okay. close. What do you picture when you picture Dan Marino? You picture the teal or the oh, white? Yeah, the teal, baby. Okay, the I picture white teal. on Dan. And then what about Brady? Blue, baby. Yeah, mm, got it. Okay. Both of those, I picture white when I think of like ideal fit. But Brady's a good one. I can give you, I'll give you Brady for sure. I'll give you Brady for sure. I still would take that Navy, but I see where you're going. I think he just has so many highlights that yeah. I've seen him in that white jersey quite a bit. Right. But Both. Yeah. yeah. All right. Your fifth and final choice. And hopefully it has a player attached to it. Otherwise, you're just certainly DQ'd and I win just on technicalities, but so I'm going to bring in an alternate actually, because I thought this one might have been off the board. So to fit your poorly described game rules, I'm going to go with actually. Okay. So this one is controversial because for some reason I see this bubbling up on social and people saying it's a bad Jersey. And I literally think the opposite, but I'm going to go with the Toronto Raptors early Barney's the purple with the kind yep. of Jurassic font. And obviously it's Vince in there. 
I think those jerseys are amazing. And who else would you take for that other than half man, half amazing himself? Vince you got to go Vince. McGrady's certainly in there. I would argue, so we're doing iconic. So Vince Carter is probably the answer. If I had to buy one though, if I had to buy one, I think I'd buy a Damon Stoudemire one. You know what's really funny is when I thought about player for this, the first name that popped in my head was Damon Stoudemire. And I was like, what are you doing? It's got to be Vince. But for some reason, that dropped in my head the first one because I, I led with the jersey. And then I was like, okay, I need to sign a player to it. And Damon Stoudemire, Mighty Mouse, just appeared in my head. And I was like, get Mighty out of Mouse. there. That tattoo, yeah. dude. Dude, I think... I don't know for sure. We'd have to look at the stats, but I have a feeling that the first year of Toronto, Vince wasn't there and Damon was that guy. And I think for us being at the age we were, if we tuned into the Raptors, you were watching Damon Stoudemire. So maybe that's where that kind of, because I have the same, like when I think old school Raptors, Damon Stoudemire's first thought it's Vince is like an after and then like McGrady's not even like on my radar on it. Yeah. Yeah. McGrady certainly made a name for himself on the Raptors. But dude, when you think right. of old school Toronto Raptors, I mean, it's totally. Vince. It has to be. It's Vince. Yeah. So I was split on this. I'm going to tell you my final choice. You're going to roll your eyes, but I think this is a clean sweep for the win because you misread the assignment here. But my last one I want to take is a Kobe Bryant Lakers number eight yellow jersey. It arguably is as iconic of Jordan's red 23. It's up there. But I was on the fence with that. And a Dream Team Jordan Blue jersey was the other one that I was competing with for my fifth and final spot. But I'll lean Kobe on that one. Yeah, give me a young Kobe 8 with his Froby days, the mini fro from Kobe. That's a good pick. You should definitely have that higher. That's probably your only good pick, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Was your last pick, but that's okay. Says the guy who chose a Hartford Whalers, not knowing a single player iconic jersey bro. <laughs> you got a great a jersey def- iconic a defunct no. team oh dude not iconic not iconic iconic, iconic to me we would show to 100 people and then 100 people would identify who that team is and what the player is in hartford connecticut it's not iconic great jersey cool jersey funny jersey yes iconic speak no. for yourself dude that is iconic if you've ever heard of the sport of hockey you know that hartford <laughs> whalers jersey get off me. did you say they went defunct in like the 70s you were like that was literally what you opened opened <laughs> up no dude no come on it was the 90s it was the 90s maybe even early 2000s all right Pretty quick sure was fact 90s. check here they closed in 1997 they played hockey for 18 years at least in the nhl great logo dude great jerseys for sure iconic i would describe iconic. it as iconic it looks like yeah. they didn't win a stanley <laughs> no, cup they were, not, they were not good they were not good paul coffee uh, Bobby Hall was a great player. Oh, dude. Paul Coffey, of course. I could have just went with Paul Coffey. <laughs> I want to, just for the record, for anyone listening to this, is that in our notes, it says draft format, flex goes first, we each pick five. And then beneath that, it says name, player, team, color slash theme. Example, Michael Jordan Bulls black pinstripe. <laughs> I don't know how else to convey to you that you had to pick a player, bro. I think you got DQ'd. I'm going to mark that down for my first one. I said Paul Coffey. I said Paul Coffey. <laughs> I said Paul Coffey. You just didn't know, dude. Hell no, <laughs> dude. Hell no, dude. Hell no. All right. I win again. Actually, I'll give you this one, man. I'm 2 and one I can't go home with the clean sweep, so it's going to have to be a gentleman's sweep. We'll catch you guys next time for episode four, Krause House, Wagbat. Peace.